0: This is the Best Friends podcast, dedicated to sharing the people and programs that are ending the killing of cats and dogs in America's animal shelters. You'll hear from animal welfare leaders from across the movement who will share the innovative and collaborative work that are creating life-saving successes in communities of all sizes. This is episode number 113 of the Best Friends podcast. Hello, welcome. It is June the 2nd. My name is John Dunn. And you know, we've got the 2022 Best Friends National Conference coming up, July 7th through the 9th. It's going to be here before you know it. If you've attended the Best Friends National Conference before, you know it's an incredible experience every time. And personally, I think this year is going to be one of the best ever, if only because we'll be back together in person. It's been far too long. I cannot wait. It's in Raleigh, North Carolina. Again, just a few weeks away, July 7th through the 9th. Check out the show notes on your podcast player. There'll be a link to learn more and to register. And you can also go to bestfriends.org conference. If you caught our episode last week with our guest Tori Fugate from KC Pet Project in Kansas City, Missouri, then you will have heard her speak about transparency and how important it is for them to be open with their community about what's happening at the shelter. Like an awful lot of places right now, KC Pet Project, they're struggling. They're dealing with crisis levels of shelter capacity. They're full all the time, but it's the community that will help them save lives. And they know that. So they share. They share the good, they share the bad, and they'll even share the ugly because sharing engages people in Kansas City. And an engaged community is a life-saving community. So this week, we're gonna dive deeper into transparency by sharing a town hall from the Best Friends Network from a few weeks ago. It was moderated by Michelle Dawson and the topic, Using Transparency to Empower and Support Your Community. You can watch the video version of this town hall. It'll be up on the website, bestfriends.org podcast. Again, the link to that, the link to the conference, everything else, you'll also find those links in the show notes of your podcast player.
1: My name is Michelle Dawson. I am the Executive Director of Best Friends Animal Society, the Utah Programming in Salt Lake City. A little bit about my background. So I just actually transitioned back to Best Friends. I just moved from Norfolk, Virginia, where I was in Municipal Animal Services as a Bureau Manager for the Norfolk Animal Care Center. Prior to that, I spent a lot of time over a decade um, with Austin Animal Services as an animal protection officer and public health educator so it is my pleasure to introduce our panel. We have Renee Gutierrez from uh, the manager of Solano County. And we have John Gary, the superintendent of Oklahoma City Animal Welfare. And we have Deborah Griggs from Animal Resources of Tidewater. And um, I'm gonna give you all a little bit of time to intru- for a brief background on your shelter, and please touch on um, geographic location. Tell us where you are, the intake size of your shelter, if you're running a shelter, and your- the role that your organization plays in your community. And we'll kick it off with Renee.
2: Hello, everybody. My name is Renee Gutierrez. I'm the manager at Solano County Animal Care Services in Fairfield, California. We are the only municipal um, shelter in the county. There is seven cities within Solano County. We have a population of people of about 438,000 plus. And the area we cover is about 909 square miles. We do not, well, we have animal control, but I am not animal care and control, I'm only animal care. So we operate under the sheriff's office and we do have animal control that covers the unincorporated areas. And then through our MOU, our memorandum of understanding, we contract out animal control with um, the city limits. I think I covered everything except impound um, last year. We impounded about 5,000 animals and our live release rate was about 88%. But we all know, you know, a little bit of changes in COVID was a catalyst to that. Um, a couple of years ago, we were probably about 7,500 animals with a live release rate, um, about 75,
1: 76%. Well, that's incredible. Thank you for being here. Thank you. You're welcome. John?
3: Yeah, I'm, uh, I'm John Gary. I'm the superintendent for Oklahoma City Animal Welfare, and we are the municipal shelter for the city of Oklahoma City, the largest shelter in the state of Oklahoma. Uh, we have an annual intake of around 20,000 animals a year uh, with about a 680,000 people population. I've been here for about, I've been my entire career here at Oklahoma City, but at about 22 and a half years now that I've been here, uh, working in all uh, all phases of the shelter. From I started off cleaning kennels uh, in 1999 and just have done everything except be the veterinarian because I'm not a doctor. But uh, we run all services. So we have the shelter side and we have animal control officers that also are responsible for our field response.
1: Great, and John, there's still time to become a veterinarian (laughs) and we need one, so (laughs) (laughs) to-do list. (laughs) All right, Deborah, welcome.
4: Thanks, Michelle. So I'm Deborah Griggs. I am with a private organization in Norfolk, Virginia, the larger region here is Hampton Roads and that's Norfolk, Virginia Beach, Chesapeake, Portsmouth and Suffolk. And I'm embarrassed to tell you, I don't really know the population. I could guess at it, but this is recorded and if I'm really off, I don't want that to be documented. Um, But what my organization does is we focus on shelter intake prevention. And so we pay for everything from veterinary care to boarding, to a hotel room for someone who's in crisis with their pets. And um, we're we're very committed to reducing shelter intake and increasing live release rates at a number of our local shelters in each of the jurisdictions. Uh, the hat I wear my day job is I'm a real estate broker. And the reason that's become important in my organizations and my role in the community is that I've done that for decades. I've been very involved in other community efforts, other volunteer efforts, and so I have developed deep relationships uh, in the community with leaders, with other organizations to build partnerships. And then the last thing I would tell you that I do, which is very important to me, is I'm the immediate past president by the Virginia Federation of Humane Societies, which is the oldest animal welfare organization in the state of Virginia. And we're doing great work throughout the state, but the hat I wear in this conversation is about what's going on right in my community.
1: Great, and yeah, I y- you all do such great work in Virginia. So that's a great natural uh, segue into uh, talking briefly about community supported sheltering mm-hmm. and what that means. So you can find Best Friends definition on our website. So community-supported sheltering really is maximizing resources through public-private partnerships that we are able to offer as animal welfare organizations, really going beyond what we have traditionally been able to offer. Uh, this involves everybody, meaning animal shelters, field services, government agencies, and the general public in support of each other's work to maximize lifesaving, and particularly those most vulnerable animals really important to note that community supported sh- sh- sheltering is not one particular program uh, it's rather a collective of co- uh, like a collective cohesion of programs and strategies that s- support all stakeholders um, as invested partners in the work of the shelter bottom line is, I think when we work together, we, we see communities who have vested interest and ownership in the work being done at the shelter and who are really maximizing the benefits of public-private partnerships. So that's what community-supported sheltering is in a nutshell. Part of that includes, let's kick it off, part of that includes the importance of building trust with your community and being transparent and honest. John and Renee, we'd like to hear from me both. If you have if, can you share ways your organization has demonstrated transparency within your community? John, in particular, I know that your organization has made changes to information you share on social media. Uh, would you like to elaborate on that?
3: Yeah. You know, I, I I'm just a firm believer that we don't do enough, a good enough job and especially municipal sheltering of sharing our story. And so uh, a few years ago, I, I actually was visiting uh, Ed Jameson down in Dallas and, and he had a report card, and and so I asked him, could I steal it? And he, and actually, it was a report that came directly out of Chameleon. So if you have Chameleon, anyone can get this report. And uh, so I, I immediately came back to Oklahoma City, and I and uh, I had him talk Chameleon. We created a report for us, and and then we started sharing that report card. And and really, it's just it it tells them how we're doing, how we did yesterday, what happened yesterday, how many animals were euthanized, adopted, intake. Um, And it really just shares a a kind of a snapshot of where we currently are and how well we're currently doing with our live release rate, um, as well as just number of animals coming in and out. And so we really made a priority. So to get this as to many people's hands as we possibly could every single day. And so uh, the way we do that, as I post every morning, it goes to our website. It goes to our main social media page. And then we also post it to our volunteer and foster pages as well as all of our transfer partners get it through our transfer partner page. So we really try to, to, to broad spread it as, as wide as we can get those numbers and that information out. And sometimes it's just as simple as, hey, this is our report card and we share the report card. And then sometimes we we talk about, um, you know, what's currently happening and why it's happening or what they can do to help prevent what's happening and what's happening. And so there's just a lot of things that we're able to use this report card for. And, and I've really found out through this process is, is, one we definitely weren't doing a good enough job because you would, it's unbelievable how much people don't know. Uh, so when you put that out there and they see those numbers, they're able to ask questions. And I think that's probably been one of the, the greatest things for me, part of it is that educational piece that then ends up coming with it. Someone sees a number, uh, a good example I, I that I, I use is we had uh, we were only at 60% capacity for cats, but we had two cat euthanasias. Well, the first thing someone did was say, why, why were two cats euthanized yesterday? And so I was able to tell them that, you know, we don't just euthanize for, for space and for no reason. Sometimes animals are euthanized for their own, uh, for just being humane through their for their own health and, and what's good for them. And so, uh, we, again, we use those as opportunities to uh, just share what's happening and, and tell our story. And I, I think um, by doing that, it, it helps develop a relationship with the public. Just, you know, they start to begin some trust whenever you're sharing those kind of numbers and those details. And, and frankly, in our shelter, as crowded as we are, we do save about 85, 86% of the animals that come in. But we do have days where 10 or 15 animals are euthanized. And so when we have those days and we still post that to the world to see, I think people respect that we do that. And then they they begin to understand that, hey, th- th- they are doing the best they can. And, and maybe what can we do to possibly help prevent this from happening? So the report card has been a, a really a big thing for us in, in how we share our message and tell our story to our community.
1: That's great. And I'd be interested to know and how many people have actually used that because I know in Norfolk, we were like, oh, look at Dallas Animal Services. We want that. We did exactly the same thing as you. <laughs> and you know it's, it's, it's really great for transparency. And I think that when, like you were talking about the euthanasias, it opens up what was previously a very heavily guarded secret and not so much a secret, but like an operational shelter operations and it opens up for that dialogue with your community. All right, Renee, um, can you talk to me about your open door policy and encouraging folks in your community to come visit the shelter? Yes, I just
2: wanted to quickly say that I, too, saw the, um, the Dallas report card. So thank you, John. I, too, asked for permission. Um, And we're right in the midst of um, completing the report and we're gonna follow suit with what you've done. So thank you for sharing that information. Um, I'm looking forward to that one. Trust and transparency with the community is huge. I think a lot of times we are very relaxed and we're very open internally, but externally. Um, Maybe there's some fear there still of backlash from the community. And um, so the trust issues aren't there. Um, What I've done here is I've made it a point to have an open door policy with my employees, and it seemed to work fairly well in the beginning. Um, And then I said, what can I do to elevate this and have that open door policy for my community as well? This led for them to gain trust in us and also the reverse for us to gain trust in our community. So it really opened up the dialogue, but ways that um, we were successful is that we pretty much had to put that message out there. We're like, we have an open door policy. If you have questions, if you have concerns, if you had a very positive experience or a negative experience, please contact me. I put my information, on our website, um, on our social media. All my business cards have my office phone, the fax, my direct line. So I put that information out there. I'm putting myself out there to be available to my community. But I, I think part of the open door policy as well is you need to have an inviting, welcoming, inclusive, polite, professional facility and organization. You want people to come in. You want that positive experience. And so you, your employees, your frontline staff, all the way to the vet staff and, and the kennel staff, they have to be inviting to the community. It's not us against them. It's we are partnering together for community collaboration. And so we want them to come in. We want them to be a part of our successes. And we also want them to know what we're struggling in. It's not a hidden secret that, Hey, our euthanasia rate was higher this month, but for these reasons. And so the dialogue really has to be there. The other thing was animals, segregating animals. And I learned this from our best friend's assessment is open door policy means make all your animals visible. Don't hide your quarantines in the back. Don't hide your stray animals in the back and only have them on your website. Let's put everything in the adoption facility where everybody can see them when they walk through. And of course, operationally, you put safety precautions on the cages for the quarantine animals. But it, it's not about the old mentality of you know your grandpa's dog pound where we hid things in the back that we didn't want our public to see. Let's be upfront, let's be honest, let's be transparent as much as possible. And that's how you gain trust with your community.
1: That's awesome. And I, it's been so exciting to see Solana's journey over the last few years. Um, I really liked when you you talked about show them what we are struggling with. Uh, because we will struggle. And but then that when you're transparent and you're open with it, that we becomes a collective we. Mm-hmm. It's the community's struggle, it's the community's effort. So I, I I love that you said that. Another critical aspect we'd like to discuss is the importance of open communication and engaging the whole community. Uh, Renee and Deborah, can you share examples of ways your organization has implemented this? Uh, lessons learned, uh, changes that you've seen, and effective communication strategies. And Renee, um, I don't want to touch on your uh, implementation of your community cap program. Can you share some examples or strategies you found successful or not successful? Sure.
2: I can't stress enough the importance of communication with the public. And I think I was one of the managers that learned the hard way. <laughs> so hopefully people can learn by my mistakes. I was um, a newly appointed manager about three years ago. I've been in this organization for over 18 years. I too started at, at the bottom and worked my way up to the top. But when I came in as manager, I just came in like a wrecking ball. I mean, I was just, just like, going as fast as I could, a mile a minute, trying to implement as many life-saving strategies and programs as I possibly could. So I was doing community cat program, managed intake, um, deferred intake, owner surrender program. I was rolling out these programs quicker than I can roll out the messaging and create policies and procedures that supported these as well. And (laughs) so it came with community uproar, and um, complaints but on the on the flip side of that it's not that I was not being open transparent and not wanting to put that information out there we were under construction our building was just a hot mess there was days we would come in we didn't have hot water we didn't have no water and these are in our dog kennels um, we didn't have air condition and uh, middle of the summer uh, we didn't have heating Sometimes we didn't have electricity at all. Sometimes we were just moving animals. It was a really crazy time with the construction. It was consuming a lot of my time. And on top of that crisis, we went right into wildfire season. So now we're dealing with another natural. So it was one crisis on top of another. And as a matter of fact, my whole time as a manager had been as one crisis as another because of COVID. But it was because of those things that were happening and consuming so much of my time I didn't have enough time in my in my day to put that messaging out there. I didn't have enough time to contact the newspapers and say, hey, this is our this is our struggle right now. We have 80 dogs, but we don't have anywhere to move them while their cages are getting renovated. We need fosters, cats, our community cat program. We were overwhelmed. We had cats everywhere. And I said, let's implement this pilot program community cat for community cats to try to save lives. And so the messaging wasn't fine-tuned in for my staff as they were passing that message on to the community. So the community was hearing, we're not accepting any cats at all, but that wasn't the message. It was, we're asking you to stop bringing in healthy cats to allow us time To humanely take care of these animals humanely house these animals and so that involved into a very successful community cat program today but that wasn't the case three years ago um would i do it all over again i would but i would just slow down i would make sure i implemented policy policies and procedures to to help in every single one of those areas and support what we were doing and I would really push the messaging out a lot faster
1: before we did anything. Awesome, and we are gonna to touch more about the importance of policies and procedures, so I'm glad you said that. Deborah. can you share more from your perspective as being part of the community, uh, from your viewpoint, how the shelter you work with was and what it has become? Sure, oh, and
4: it's so interesting to me to listen to John and Renee discussing And Michelle, you say, too, you know, the dirty little secret, let's hide this from the public and to hear it from your perspective and also share with you that from my perspective, I lived it for 20 years as one of they. I was not in the club. I wanted to be in the club, but I wasn't in the club. Um, The first thing I did 21 years ago when I founded Animal Resources of Tidewater was walk into the Norfolk Animal Care Center, which didn't have that name, and sat down with the manager and the the senior humane officer and said, what can I do to help you? Because it occurred to me that if that agency was in place, one could create a different organization or you know, another shelter or build bigger shelters or more shelters. But maybe the thing to do was to go into that shelter where at that time we were euthanizing or killing, whichever your language, over 50% of the animals. We were at about a 40% save rate. So we weren't doing so well. And it seemed to me that's what I should do. Over these 21, almost 22 years, I have continued to approach sheltering in my community with that belief. But what I have seen is that shelter directors for many years were indoctrinated to, this is our shame, this is our embarrassment, we can't let the public see this. And what that created in the community, maybe for all the right reasons, was the right reasons being, let's protect the community from this because this isn't a pretty thing we've got going on here, was this incredible barrier. And that grows into animosity and enormous distrust. Um, The the light went on for us here in a, a beautiful way when Michelle Dawson, who is managing this wonderful town hall, Came to be the shelter director in the Norfolk Animal Care Center. Now, let me just assure you the people were the same, the animals were the same, the resources were largely the same. Nothing changed, but a director came into our shelter and said, We're going to engage the community. This shelter is going to be a community resource center. We are no longer going to hide what goes on in the shelter and the light bulb went off and the we they went largely away. Look, that doesn't that doesn't disappear in just a year or a couple of years. When you have spent decades creating the barrier, it takes a while for that trust to really be strong. But in my community now we have a different sheltering environment. We have a place that's seen as a resource for people and pets. My organization works in powerful partnership with that shelter. Remember when I went in years ago and said, what can I do to help you? Guess what that's met with now? That's met with, thank you, here's what you can do. Years ago, it wasn't met with that. So that to me is what happens. When the community partners with the shelter, the shelter with the community that we make an intentional commitment to work together and work through whatever history we
1: had that kept us apart that gets to robust life saving thank you and you're very kind and but i do want to say that yes it takes there's a conduit there's one person who can come in and open it up um and for anybody out there who is afraid to open up i mean please contact us we're here to support you because it's a real thing, and I promise you it will get better. Next, we'd like to discuss um, empowering the public to become partners in life saving. Thinking about the public being various members of the community, including potential donors, volunteers, taxpayers, or any external stakeholders. And we all know we've come a long way over the last few decades, uh, changing our mindset as the public being the problem, shifting to them being part of the solution that us versus them, now it's a collective us, Mm -hmm. Um, your community's perception of your agency uh, sets the tone for how your entire community views your agency, and often their perception is reality. And we all, well, not everybody knows, but I will say it loud and proud, field services is a huge part of this. Those officers are oftentimes out in the field, like engaging with the community every single day. Um, Sometimes they're the only interaction that your community will have with your agency, so it's really important that they are out there being viewed as resource officers and just engaging in a really positive way. John, I know your shelter has made some changes with your field services program. Can you share more about that, including, you know, how the community views the officers uh, and new programs and pr- protocols you may have implemented.
3: Yeah, probably about 5 or 6 years ago we we made the decision to, to really change from a, you know, the old enforcement Base to more of a resource educational uh, type experience for our, for our animal control officers, and I will tell you it was not an, an an easy transition. First, we had a lot of animal control officers that didn't want to go to to the to the new way, so we we had to deal with that obviously. Um, but then th- just making that transition for our officers was a challenge, just because they. It was just so new and such a different interaction that they were having with these people a a good example would be back then we would we um if we came because they had no doghouse for instance we would our officer would say you got 48 hours to get the doghouse if you don't we're going to come back we're going to write you a ticket and that's what they did um now if they don't have a doghouse we give them a doghouse you know so it's just a it's just a different um way of looking at it In and really, our goal, is, you know, what I tell our staff is our field officers, is that, we're, you know, we're, all we're after is compliance, right? We want them to be good pet owners. We want them to be within what our ordinance requires them to be. And so, rather than, than penalize them for not being, let's let's help them be that. And um, it's really gone a long ways, I think, for the community and the way they see them. And you know, I, I I stress to our officers they are the face of our organization. For much of our community, they're the only people they ever interact with, and so that interaction has to be has to be a good one. Even even in our bad scenarios, whenever we're working cruelty cases and and dangerous dog cases that their officers have to work, it's important that they try to make that experience as positive as they can for that individual. Um, and, and in some of these cruelty situations, it's not always necessary to file a cruelty charge. Sometimes we can we can help them by. By getting their animal situation under control, helping them with placement, just do different things and think about it differently uh, when you approach that person, rather than uh, we're going to write you tickets. Um, because you know, I, I've been doing this a long time, and, and I can tell you uh, from experience, it just hasn't worked. And and I and now that we're doing things differently, uh, I think our community sees us differently. Um, our officers are they're happier at work it's much easier to come to a job that you can go and be a resource and helpful to someone rather than penalize them and and have to be that the bad the bad guy you know as as officers were previously looked at and so it's not just helped our community but it's helped our staff and employees um feel better about what they do and really take that role as a public servant that we are uh seriously and that we're there to to help our community uh be better pet owners at the end of the day
1: that's great. And I'm a, I'm a forever champion of field service officers. All right. We did have a question come through asking about leadership engaging with external stakeholders. And I know, uh, John and Renee, particularly, you know, your municipal servant, like when you're in the hot seat, I know how I can feel. Drawing back to my experience in Norfolk, you know, I always looked at getting questions with however they were poised and however they came through you know getting questions from the public or any external stakeholders really created an opportunity for me to be able to share more information, right? Share those protocols, procedures, getting down to the nitty gritty, you know, and educating everybody on what they wanted to know. Like, how do we run our operations? And that gave us a a chance to kind of control the narrative, not letting people just kind of make it up, right? Because often the people who are asking is because, you know, they don't have that much um, experience with your organization and they just want to know more. But I found that, which is common with working at Best Friends and working with multiple organizations and going to Norfolk, that a lot of organizations don't have written protocols or SOPs. And I think the barrier to that might be that it just seems like a huge task, an insurmountable task. You know, you're like, oh, we have 700 procedures. How am I going to write it all down? So just, you just kind of start from the beginning and they don't have to be fancy. I have to say that. We have a really great couple of links that we'll share in the chat. It's a recent editorial and program spotlight related to this. So if your organization is looking to review your SOPs or get started in writing protocols, please grab those links. Personally, I want to say it doesn't have to be fancy. Uh, SOPs, they may have to go up to city council, county commissioners, but if you just call them written protocols, it could just be an internal document that you can share. Uh, John, do you want to share anything about... Protocols? How are you all dealing with that in Oklahoma? You did? Did you have them always, or is it just a work in progress?
3: Well, uh, there's two things. Though, actually, I want to touch on that opportunity thing you mentioned earlier too, because you know, as a municipal shelter, one of the first reactions we get when we get angry people is we're going to call the media, right? That's, that's almost always we're going to we're going to contact the media, and and I, every time they say that to me, I say please do, because I, I I would love that any opportunity I can get. To stand in front of a camera and tell our community what's happening here and what we need help with and what we're doing, I'll take full advantage of it. So I think you you do have to look at those situations as opportunities. And there is a way to have those tough conversations and, and do it in a way that's good for your organization. And so I think take advantage of every one of those opportunities you get. Um and then on to onto the SOP part. I, I really, you know, we've had them for a really long time, but one of the things that um that I've done over the last couple of years, and actually we're in the process of doing it again right now. We're in our annual review uh, of our SOPs that we do um, about the beginning of every year, and um, one of the things that I, that I would that I stress to people all the time is don't forget about um, you know there's always the SOPs right to say how do you clean a kennel or how do you how do you do this or how do you do that. But when you're going through these, don't don't forget about things like customer service and how we're going to treat each other and. And how um, we're going to treat the public, and and just all of those things, you you have to set uh, an expectation for your staff. And I think we f- we forget that a lot of the time. We forget that um, you know, we, yeah, we can we need SOPs about how to clean the kennel, but we also need SPs about um, how we're going to interact with each other, with our public, um, ha- how we're going to represent the organization. All of those things are important to think about when you're writing those and making sure that you have something in place. I'm a big fan and, and frankly, like, I just started doing this through the executive leadership through Best Friends, but I'm a big fan now of the uh, workplace agreement. I, I mean, we, we have it now. Our volunteers do it. Our staff sign it, um, and we all agree about how we're going to treat each other, how we're going to treat the animals, how we're going to treat the public. And um, just think keep those things in mind whenever you're going through the SOP process and procedure and policy process, because those are probably going to be at the end of the day, some of your most important ones. And again, it sets a level of expectation for your staff uh, and how they're going to behave whenever they're representing the organization.
1: Right, I'm so glad you mentioned workplace culture. And I'm not sure if we have that link, but those will be made available because there's a template if anybody's interested. Renee, do you have anything on SOPs? How's Solano doing on those? We're doing great now. (laughs) (laughs) I think this is great. We need to talk about how it's not always, they haven't always existed necessarily for every organization.
2: Yeah, we, we had some um, policies in place, the, the really big ones, but I agree with John. All those little small ones that are really, really important and crucial to workplace expectations, um, customer service, like those were the ones that were lacking. But once we got on a roll of creating these new documents, we just ran with it. I mean... We, what we did is we just created a, a list of what was the highest priority ones. I mean, cleaning a cat cage could hold off because we had the old policy. And so we just created a list and we just started knocking them out one by one. And then over a little bit of time, our veterinarian took over and she's fabulous at writing. And so I was very happy to turn that over to her because they turned out way better with her than they would have with me because she's very meticulous. So, yeah, our our policies and procedures, our SOPs are, are outstanding now versus what they were three years ago.
1: Right, and it's OK to not be great at it. I mean, that's we all start from somewhere. And I know it's intimidating, but... We can get there. You just and also, you know, organizations share their SOPs and their protocol. Were you about to say that?
2: Yeah, I was about to elaborate on that, and I am more than willing to always share our SOPs with um, everybody. I've done it several times on some of the other animal welfare calls that we're on, um, because sharing is very important because they are time consuming. They're very time consuming. And so if you can just kind of update them to your organization um, and roll it out that way, it saves everybody time
1: and everybody's happy. Awesome. All right. The next, moving on, I'm just looking at the time. Um, Now, the next topic is one of my favorites, given my recent experience in Norfolk and knowing how much of a lifeline our partners are to a shelter. And Deborah, could you talk a little bit? I know you you elaborated a little bit earlier about the collaboration between your organization, the shelter and your community. but what advice would you give other organizations who are looking to provide resources to a shelter that perhaps um, who aren't getting let in? Well, you know,
4: it sort of goes back to the first question I asked when I went in there, right? And long ago, those were different issues. But as you know, Michelle, one of the things that you can do as a private organization, in my opinion, to make yourself... Appealing to the folks who run the municipal shelter, because look, I I want to serve the animals and I want to have a robust relationship with the shelter leadership. So I'd like to offer something that's appealing, right? That that's a quick way to become good friends. For example, at our shelter, our shelter—I always say our—I'm from West Virginia, but at our shelter, um, when the Norfolk Animal Care Center began its safety NAC program, and that was an emergency program, or the program wasn't an emergency, but a program to respond to emergencies for citizens who were hospitalized or jailed or whatever crisis, and it provided short-term foster care. Well, you know, what my organization did was step up and say, we got a grant to 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 deal with medical issues those pets may have or supplies the pets may need, whether it was a crate or a leash or whatever. The other thing you may recall, I said what my organization does is we provide medical care and other resources to citizens to keep their pets out of the shelters. But one thing we hadn't built in was to have a, a, a designated fund that we could use at that shelter. And what I mean by that was we created a very intentional partnership with the shelter so that staff knew if a citizen presented to surrender an animal because of a medical issue, that case could be turned over to us. In other words, front desk staff knew that they could send that citizen to us, not reject the citizen, not, not not, offer to help, but say, look, here's an alternative. And we could step in and at the point of surrender, stop it right away. So I think it does start for private organizations to ask the municipal shelter, what do you need?
1: And that creates a bond that can be very strong. I love that. Yeah. And just asking and that way, and even before you write a grant, like you can ask, Hey, what do you need? What are we looking for? Let's do this together. It's, it was a turning point when we were getting approached by nonprofits saying, we want to work with you. It was, it was fantastic. All right. Uh, for those of, uh, for those organizations who aren't 501c3 and a little bit more confined, um, let's talk about friends of groups and boards and what they look like um and how you can partner to fill the gaps in your programs and i know john you have a pretty robust friends of group
3: yeah so we you know we've had actually had a friends of group for quite some time and and here when COVID hit the, the group that we had the, the on the on the board there just their world's changed and, and out of necessity here recently we we have a whole completely new board that's formed uh, only uh, two board members remain from the old board, so we got a new president, new vice president, new treasurer, all at the same time. It was almost like a complete change, all all happening at one time. And and um, the the good thing for this is it was able. It was a time for me to be able to help, uh, kind of rejuvenate the group, and 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 bring some um, you know some fresh people in there with some new ideas. You know, one of the first well, the first meeting I had with them a few weeks ago actually was. Uh, we went to lunch, and, and they they wanted to know what what they could do the most to help us, right? And so, you know, they knew about grant writing, they knew about raising funds if we needed uh, to, something for the shelter. But what they they wasn't thinking about at the time, and I think friends of groups can really really help with is is sharing that they're that they're part of our, us and what they do for us. You know, one of the biggest things that I think the friends of groups can do is say we are a nonprofit organization, and and our goal is to help them. And these are the great things that they're doing, that they need help with. And this is why we exist. And um, by sharing that it, it adds, again, adds, I think, a little more credibility to the municipal shelter, when a when a nonprofit organization is willing to form to support them and to do those things. I think it's it tells the community that um, the one that there's a need, right, there's a need that we we have needs that that we aren't able to meet without some help from some other organizations. And I think it encourages uh, people to to participate more. and um for whatever reason, you know, I mean we are the government, right? So they tend to trust these groups a little bit more uh, when it comes to even uh, donating funds to them., uh, they're more likely to to donate funds in, in some instances. and then obviously grants are a big thing, right? because there's so many grants out there that municipal shelters can't uh, that they, they just can't apply for because the funders doesn't don't fund municipal uh, facilities. so, those things all come important with these groups, but I will say the the friends of groups are so important. And I know in some municipal shelters, they're scared of them, right? They they won't, the last thing they want is another group that looks like an oversight committee or or something like that. But that's really um, that relationship building and things that you can that you can do and, and the benefits that come from it. I think if you if you're if you're smart and you form a good board with people, uh, you know, understanding what their role is and what they're they're there for. Uh, it's so beneficial to a municipal shelter to have an organization like that and, and, and what they can help you do in the community and communicate with the community. Uh, one of the biggest things they did just did for us, for instance, we have all the bus stops have our, our adoption uh, cats on them and says adopt the cat. You know, they're just like everywhere you go in the city now. And our friends of group did that through connections that they had with local media. So just things like that, that, that they can do to help spread our message. And they're able to do it in ways that we may not necessarily be able to do as a municipality.
1: That's great. Closing question for everybody. Can you talk a little bit about the impact of the shift that you've experienced going uh, becoming more transparent from uh, from the before to now? And what has been the biggest impact or anything that's changed your perspective or your biggest surprise that you've experienced? And anybody can jump in first.
3: Um, I mean, I guess I'll start off since I forgot to mute myself again. Um, I will. uh, The the biggest thing that I think I took away is, you know, when I when we began this process, our our goal was to educate the community on what's happening at the shelter. In return, we have been educated by our community about what they need. Right. So I never thought to really ask, you know, what the community needed from me before. Like, it sounds it sounds crazy, but right. We're always it's always, always about us like me, me, me. What do I need? What do I need help with? And and we I think we all too often we forget that. There's people out there that that need us, too. And so once we open that door, more people are, are contacting us to, to communicate those things, communicate those needs, and giving us an opportunity to help them. And um, that was real eye-opening for me. I really, I did not expect for me to get educated in this process, too. I really thought it was going to be us uh, educating them and supporting them. But in, in turn, the exact, they have reciprocated. You know, they're educating us and they're supporting us. And so I think that's probably my biggest takeaway from all of this.
2: I would like to say that life saving cannot happen without partnering with your community. I mean, there's absolutely no way we would be able to save as many animals as we are without partnering with our community. It just doesn't happen. And the community also needs to know what role they play in the shelter. They need to know what what we need, and we need to be specific in what we're asking for. Our website has donations on there that are very specific. It goes to Spay It Forward. It goes to Hit To Be Tipped. It goes to our Pet Safety Net program. Um, They're very specific asks because the community needs to know what they're donating towards. That's where you're going to get that partnership and that trust that they're they're not only just donating to something and they don't know what we're spending their money on. And so the more specific you can be with your community, the better they are um, able to help you out.
4: You know, what I would say is it's like the weight has been lifted off of all of us when you engage in this. It's not that the work is easier. This is hard work. The work that folks do in this world is hard every day. But the oppression of being against each other was
3: exhausting.
4: It it had its own level of of hard impact. So I would say that it's, it's made life easier for everybody we agree we're up to the same thing, we don't all have the answers, people are happier, they're more joyful. I mean, I think John was talking about as animal control officers. How much more fun is that instead of being the bad guy to say, but to say, hey, let me help you with the doghouse. I mean, the whole culture has changed for all of us. And I think at the end of the day, the overall impact is that that collective energy goes a long way to an overwhelming increase in life-saving and to making people's lives better.
1: All right. I love that. And yeah, bottom line is community won't know how to help us if we don't tell them. And if we're not being transparent, we're not really telling them how they can help us. So it might be a scary step. So just take that first step and, and see what happens. Uh, Like Deborah said, it's a very tough job anyway. So let's try and make it a little bit easier and be kinder to each other. There are some great questions here. A lot of them are uh, around the daily report card, which is great. So John, I know you're currently doing it. Renee, you're on your way. So how do you do this on social media? This is a great question. On a daily basis without having it as a time suck. They don't have chameleon, but they want to do that. So there are different ways to do it. And I just want to tag on to another one and do detractors ever use that report card against you? Example: complaining about uh, reunification, diversion, return to field efforts when the shelter is not at capacity. Great question.
3: Yes. Yeah, so, um, honestly, um, it is, I know I listed all those locations. I'm posting that. It takes me like three minutes to get through the whole thing. Like it, it is not a time consuming thing. I'm um, actually in the process of teaching my operations manager. What what I do when I do it so that when I'm not here it also happens because right now if I'm not here it doesn't happen, you know it's not a time consuming process once you get a report for us especially if you have Chameleon it's a report it's generated out of Chameleon when I show up to work in the morning it's already in my inbox and my email Chameleon has postmaster they set that up for you and so it, I literally I I have I will say this it works better on social media if if you post the as a J as a picture as a JPEG. Um, Because if you post as a document, it it can become difficult to read. So I did learn that fairly early on. And so, but it's, but I, you know, we convert it to a JPEG and then we post it. And it takes me seconds Um, and it says, and I try not to uh, always type a long message with you, right? Sometimes it just says, here's today's report card and then there it is. Uh, And then sometimes if there's something that we really want to stress, then we do that. And, And I do that intentionally because I don't want, if I think of every day, if I'm sending this big long paragraph along with the report card, it's going to get where they're not really paying much attention to it. So I really want to make sure that whenever I do have something, I want to type that long paragraph, they're going to read it because, oh, it looks different today. There's a message here. Um, and so I do that intentionally and also try not to be, so it doesn't look like it's it's always the same. Um, so I do recommend that, but it's not really a time consuming process really. Once you get the reporting and the information Uh, going, like I said, ours is is automatically generated and sent to us and we just have to post it. So it literally takes seconds to post on social media. Our website's a little more different because of the database that we have to use to do our uh, website. But still, I bet the whole process takes me three minutes tops every day, every morning when I do it.
1: John, are you linking social media platforms? Because I know you can link Instagram to Facebook to whatever else they allow you to have. Um, So it's really just one post and it can cross post. I'm not sure if you all do that.
3: Right. Yes. Yeah. Our city has a a platform that does that for us. So we post it to Facebook and it goes to the other ones. Very
2: cool. I'd just like to add real quick on that. So we do post monthly statistics and we have had some questions on there. Say if there was 14 um, euthanasias, we'll have somebody question, well, why was there 14 euthanasias? And so again, you take that opportunity to educate, those were animals that were hit by our car, and we did everything we could to save them, but that best outcome, humane outcome for that animal was to put it to sleep. So you you take advantage of those questions to educate the public. I would not let that deter you from posting this information, because again, it's the trust and the transparency is the reason behind why you're doing it.
3: Yeah, don't don't steer away from those tough questions. I mean, I, I'm telling you, I know they're hard and they are tough, but it it is your opportunity to really tell your story and and, and it gives you that, you know, it, it's great anytime you get that opportunity to be able to tell your story. And, and so don't steer away from them as hard as they may be. Sometimes don't don't steer away from them. Hit them head on and and be honest, open and, and really tell us your story about what's really happened.
1: Exactly. How and in what ways do you ensure your staff are aligned before communicating to the community, especially on things you're struggling with?
3: Um, you know, I, I really think, you know, especially with our field staff and our and the shelter staff, we actually have morning briefings. And so we use that time to really make sure our staff understands uh, whatever it is that's happening in the moment, especially if we have something that happens that really, for instance, we had a lady that was severely attacked by a dog a few weeks ago.
0: We we had those
3: meetings with those with our staff and said, "Hey, this is how we're going to talk about this subject. This is what you you, you are to how you respond to it, um, because you know ultimately those things are tragedies in in our community, right? So we have to respond well to them. Um, and so I, I think most of it is just communicating uh, those expectations right up front when they happen and make sure our your staff uh, again it goes back to the SOPs and policies we talked about earlier too, make sure they understand that sometimes. Um, their role in the organization is not to talk about that, but to get them to me or to a supervisor that can then uh, make sure they're getting the, the proper message. But for the most part, we try to educate them and let them and have those conversations with the with our community.
1: Any final thoughts before we wrap this up? We're almost at the top of the hour.
3: Well, I, I guess my final thought would just be, you know, uh, again, don't steer away from those tough conversations. And um, when you do have bad things happen, uh, don't be afraid to, uh, to put yourself out there and and try to educate the community on why they happened. And uh, we know, uh, you know, as a municipal shelter, especially uh, when you're a large one, as we are in the volume vandals we deal with, sometimes things happen that that we don't want to happen. And uh, we we our goal is to not have them happen. But but obviously they do. And when they do happen, be willing to step up and and, and talk to your community about it. And then also ensure that um, they know that you're going to work to make sure it doesn't happen again.
2: I would like to just close with, you know, we're all in this together. Um, It's internal, external stakeholders, it's the employees, the volunteers, the community. Um, We're all in this to save the animals and we can't do it without each other. When, you know, when we know better, we do better, definitely. And so be open for constructive criticism and feedback from your community and vice versa. So it it really is going to take all of us to do what needs to be done with um, saving animals.
4: The only thing I would add to it is that I continue to be inspired really by, um, you know, the growth of public partner, public-private partnerships in animal welfare. I mean, we have examples here. There are examples all over the country of how, you know, the,
0: the successes that yield. So just keep up the good work. That's all I have to say. Thank you to Bethany Hines, Kayla Cebo, Whitney Blyton, Kim Clonch, Tawny Hammond, and Mark Peralta. My name is John Dunn, and this is the Best Friends Podcast.